Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. Welcome, welcome back. If you've been here before, welcome for the first time, if you haven't. The Bureau is dedicated to unearthing, excavating lost, half-remembered, half-forgotten, countercultural stories and oral testimonies. And in this episode, we're going to head east from London to that centre of counterculture, Berlin. And back in time to a particular strange lost culture that happened between the wars. But more of that in a moment. I'm Stephen Coates and I'd like to invite you to come and join us. Sign up for our newsletter at bureauoflostculture.com. You'll hear all about each episode as it's coming up and all sorts of other countercultural malarkey. You can also help support our wild endeavours if you choose to. And on that subject, I'd like to say thanks to Jan, Tom, Chris and Pete who have supported our wild endeavours most recently. Thank you. We appreciate that. If you'd like to come and join us in person, we have a festival starting very shortly in October. London Month of the Dead, 56 events over the month taking place in all sorts of strange places, cemeteries, crypts, charnel houses, chapels, and online. LondonMonthOfTheDead.com Right, let's get down to it. In recent years, as property developers and property prices have forced the artistic and the edgy out of London to a large extent, many of those have fled east to Berlin. They'll probably get forced out somewhere else beyond to Athens or something next. But in the meantime, one of the reasons to go there was not only economics, but but the openness that city has had in many people's minds to the arts, creativity, experimentation and the weird and wonderful. Not to mention banging club culture and hedonism. I'll always associate Berlin with the Berlin Wall. David Bowie's best albums, and of course, The Cold War. But we're going to go back even further in this episode of The Bureau to meet with Madame Lepoustre, actor, singer, slonnier, kunstviger, cabaret and variety performer. As we head down dark alleyways, down to basement clubs and strange, wonderful theatres in search of the Berlin cabaret of the Weimar era. Lapustra, born in South Africa, relocated to the UK to pursue a career in musical theatre and emerged onto the underground cabaret and variety scene. In 2012, Lapustra created a contemporary reimagining of the Berlin Cabaret during the Weimar culture interwar eras. It was called Lapustra's Cabaret de Namenlosen, the Cabaret of the Nameless. And most recently, Lapustra has made their television debut as Edwina Morel, the mysterious owner of the Luxor nightclub, in season three of the award-winning German crime drama, Babylon Berlin. Welcome, Madame Lepustra. Hello, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Listen, um, I was talking a little bit about you there in the intro, but far better, I think, to hear it from Madame Lepustra's mouth. Who is Madame Lepustra? I, I can probably say I've had quite a eclectic career so far I've done a bit of everything and I think that in the beginning that was quite confusing for people I, I remember people used to say oh you look very nice but what do you do so I think but I guess for the last six years I've been based in Berlin and um, I started a, a theatre play kind of an immersive show do a bit of acting as well in Babylon Berlin season three I got introduced and I'm also in the upcoming season four which I hear is coming out in October on Sky. And I always actually wanted to be a film actor, but it didn't quite work out. So I kind of fell into variety and cabaret, basically just learned everything on the job. And also I just made it up as I went along. You're being rather rather modest there because you're, I mean, in terms of performance art, I mean, your, your aesthetics are remarkable, actually. Very beautiful and strange. Nowadays, uh, if you, you know look at, the, you know, the explosion of drag as such. I mean, the makeup and the stuff that these kids do, it's absolutely amazing. So I kind of feel a bit out of date, perhaps. I think when, when I was working in London a lot, people really liked 
my aesthetic and call it extreme or avant-garde or frightening or whatever, but I don't compare to what's, what's out there now. But yeah, the white makeup, I think it's like a Piero base, the clown kind of, and that kind of stuff. And then I would just kind of change various characters. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an archetypal look. I was going to talk to you a little bit later about not just in terms of what we're going to talk about, the Berlin Cabaret, but also... Um you know, there's links with other kind of cabarets like the Cabaret Russe and, and uh, Vertinsky as well with this kind of Piero figure, which is this kind of wonderful dreamlike character which sort of stalks and pirouettes through these strange lost uh, places. Why don't we dive in? Because you have been researching it as well as acting it, as well as living it rather, the so-called Weimar Cabaret. So for anybody who doesn't know, Germany has lost the First World War and Kaiser Wilhelm II, the king or emperor, has to resign uh, because there's loads of protests and there's a new Republican government based in the town of Weimar. And it's all quite positive for a while, isn't it? I mean, Germans are all equal. They've got the same civil rights and responsibilities. They've got right to freedom of expression, peaceful assembly, freedom of religion. There's no state church. All very liberal and open. But there's a big economic problem because Germany has to pay reparations to the countries that won the First World War, which means they've got these huge debts, um, which people are resentful about. And as a consequence of not being able to pay them, the government starts to print money and they get hyperinflation. Sounds a bit familiar at the moment. Um, and of course, that creates this economic chaos. There's a big depression and that allows the Nazis to arise. I mean, people are, are fascinated by this period and so much came out of it. I keep discovering more and more to really understand the period, but it's just fascinating, especially from the artistic side. side um, an innovative time. Everything was booming, fashion, art. Previously in Kaiser time, when we talk about theatre and stuff, for instance, there was heavy censorship. So if you put anything you put on stage had to be pre-approved by uh, the police. So you had to send your script and everything that you were planning to do on stage, it had to be approved. So they were kind of checking there was nothing offensive. If you did do something on stage, you could be heavily fined. Your license could be revoked. So they were quite strict. So when the Weimar Republic came, there were still things that were obviously not allowed, but the authorities looked the other way so people could get away with much more. And that's obviously very evident on, on um, when we look at the cabaret. New dancing came in, which was in vogue in the beginning. So there was lots of new dancing. It was called Schönheitsabender, which translates as beauty evenings. So they, they, they really packaged it nicely, but it was in fact new dancing. So people would go and see this. Um, and then obviously new objectivity, Neue Sachlichkeit art movement that came in. Otto Dix was a very um, prominent member of this movement. In Germany, as early as the late 1800s, I believe, by Magnus Hirschfeld, there were campaign, campaigns for uh, gay rights. Well, that, that in itself is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, very, very early. So, I mean, it seems to me as well is that it's this rather dreamlike time as well because it's actually sandwiched between these two cataclysmic events particularly for Germany two world wars which Germany loses whereas in Britain the 1920s particularly the 30s you get the impression that they're rather kind of dreary it was yes I think that's why someone like Christopher Isherwood did come to Berlin because obviously homosexuality was illegal in the, in, um, in the UK and it, it was still illegal in, in Berlin as well. It could be as late as the 70s when that was, the late 60s, I don't know. So it was illegal but you know you could come here and indulge in, in any fantasy that you had. So people did come to Berlin to kind of uh, take part of all this newly found freedom and so-called decadence that was happening. We're gonna hear a few tunes from the era that you've chosen. Let's have one now. What's this? Oh yeah, uh, Lila Leap, the Lavender Song. This was written in 1920. It was supposedly the first day album. Yeah. 
exciting place to be, especially after the First World War and just coming out of the Victorian Edwardian period. Then there was also all the poverty and financial problems people had. People lost all their money. Well, very famously, of course, there was this hyperinflation period, wasn't there? These Im images of people with carts full of money to buy a loaf of bread. Just to go back a little bit then, you were talking about the time before that. Obviously, there was the war before that and with the Kaiser, and that was a time when there was censorship, like most places during the war. They tend to censor more. But even before that, it had been fairly staid, hadn't it? So you, everything that was on stage had to be pre-approved, you know, and things were forbidden. So I'm trying to, still trying to understand the, what it was that suddenly kicked the doors of the salons open. They took censorship away. That in itself is quite a rare thing, is in the 20th century. We see more and more censorship rather than less and less. So... What was it in the sort of psyche? Was it the cataclysmic effect of losing a war that, you know, the mortality involved in that and the, the that sense of doom that brought about this extraordinary period? I think it's a lot of different things that came together at that specific time. Fate came in as well. I mean, the first cabaret apparently in 1901, but it was nothing like the cabarets that we know now it wasn't as risque or during the first world war a lot of shows became very nationalistic and they wanted uh, positive things to make uh, people feel good and nothing that would insult make the germans look bad there and also variety shows were the, the most popular form of entertainment there was this huge culture here in the uk of music hall it was the main popular entertainment right we're in an era before film you know, we're in the era before even radio and even recorded music is in its infancy, you know, and so this was the popular entertainment, wasn't it? It was. I mean, vaudeville sort of, start, I think, started in the state or the mid 800s and not. Variety shows was very uh, popular here during that time. And actually, when cabaret started springing up everywhere, uh, directors, theatre directors, they were very angry about it because a lot of these cabarets didn't have any licences. Uh, apparently in Germany at that time, you had to close at 11 o'clock at night. You couldn't go past that. And a lot of cabarets went on after that and sort of stole away a lot of the audience. And also tastes changed, you know, with all developments in the early 1900s. So there was a lot of change happening and people just, I think, got bored and Abre was the new kid on the blog. It was fashionable. And um, and then I think it really took off in the in the mid-20s, the golden 20s. The golden 20s, yeah, which is a bit like the roaring 20s in the States, right? Yeah. This was a, also an entertainment which was across the board because I suppose I associate with the roaring 20s in the States it being a kind of certain clique of quite well-to-do uh, people and maybe also almost more aristocratic flappers and stuff. Whereas in Berlin, was this cabaret across the class divide? Was it all sorts of people who went there? Or was it, again, a kind of elitist bohemian set that frequented them? I think when we look at, when we look at this period, I think we sometimes forget that society didn't all partake in this or didn't have the money to buy the latest fashions or go to these clubs. I do think it was maybe perhaps for a smaller part of society that most people were very, very poor. And what I do like about Babylon Berlin is they really do show how people lived. I mean, Berlin was horribly overcrowded. Everyone was moving here because Berlin, Mark Twain had said Berlin was the new Chicago because at that time, Chicago was the most uh, exciting and modern city. Things were just developing left and right People were moving from the countryside to Berlin. They had a lot of immigrants. So the city just struggled with accommodation. So people just, they were crammed in buildings. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think everyone was able to take part of this, this booming the 20s as we see it now. And, and, you know, when dancing came in, the dance craze and all these clubs opened. And I think it was, again, just a kind of result of this horrible period of the First World War. People were just kind of tired and they just wanted to have fun. Wanted to go out late at night and stay out, especially for women. The term Neue Frau, the, no the new woman who felt emancipated and uh, could go out and, you know, have new fashions to choose from and cut the hair and smoke and be completely independent from men. So there's so many little things that I think just came together to create this energy, this, this wonderful time, even though they did have a lot of problems financial and 
you know, the, the political situation was obviously still very unstable. So I think that the Golden Twenties refers more to the period from 1924 to 29, just before the Depression hit. So mm. it's actually not that many years that were really kind of what we think about as um, decadent period as such. Let's have another tune. This song is called Ach ihr hast. It is uh, performed by Blandine Ebinger. She was the wife of a Swedish Hollander. And the song basically means uh, he hates it when I love him, he hates it when I hate him. That the cabaret had in common with the variety shows was floor or music hall too was that it was a series of short acts wasn't it so in the music hall and the variety stages of the uk i mean you'd have people performers who had developed an act and it often quite silly things or you know they could they could do some whistling act and they would tour tour the country and be part of a program of events at one particular evening, you know, when they might perform for two and a half minutes or five minutes and then another performer on, right? So it shared that and it sort of evolved out of that, but it was much more rich, wasn't it, in terms of- You have of to define a cabaret. It's normally um, in a tavern or a pub and you will have a MC on stage or as they know in German uh, cabaret culture, a conferencier, it's actually a French word. Um, and then you will have people normally sitting at tables. There will be food and drink served. And the, the role of the MC would be to obviously introduce the acts and to um, comment on the day, comment on politics. And, um, and then there'll be normally about eight to 10 acts. It could range anything from a few minutes to three or four minutes. It, it, it would have been monologues, singing, um, skits, variety shows had more acrobatics. Anything that would be entertaining could be classified as a vaudeville act. And a lot of these performers had one act their whole lives. And they would perform yeah. it over and over. So it's yeah, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, people would actually perfect something like been able to whistle with their bottom or something, right? And then they would basically tour the entire life performing this thing. And and if something interesting when the talkies came in, and, and this killed uh, variety in vaudeville, and a lot of performers actually sold their acts because they they either retired or they couldn't make the transition. And I think that was the same everywhere. But of course, Berlin has a very specific kind of formula. And I think what makes Berlin Cabaret so interesting, it has the Berliner Schnauzer, which it has this kind of biting satire and sarcasm and rudeness to it and it's still to this day it has that extra special juice i think that made that the cabaret very uh, uniquely berliner cabaret we should also say that berlin itself was quite different than the rest of germany right so it like in britain there was lots of conservative parts of germany particular kind of little world right oh, and definitely yeah and it still is today there's a book uh, by mal gord he put this book together voluptuous panic it's a really interesting fun book um, it kind of focuses on the erotic side of Berlin. There's a line in his book where Berliners believe that there was something in the air to make them crazy and dance 
until the next day and uh, have all this energy and it makes you lose your inhibitions. And I do feel there is something, even today, there is an energy in the air that makes you feel inspired or excited. There's always something happening. When I'm in, in Berlin, I'm I'm my most anxious. And as soon as I go back <laughs> to the UK, I seem to be relaxed. It's a sort of psychic geographic thing then, isn't it? Because it's like it's there all the way through the Weimar. And then and then still, you know, people f- flock to Berlin from the UK, right? London clubbers flock to, flock to Berlin and from around the world, right? And it's still got that kind of decadent, hedonistic, edgy pulse. People just flock here. And I mean, we, we have a housing crisis right now because it's just too many people want to come here so i think berlin is just such a fascinating city very turbulent history but just something here that Mm. seemed to be very special and i haven't encountered anywhere else but i just wanted to come back to the difference between cabaret and cabaret which there is a distinction so cabaret is kind of what we think about when we maybe think about parisian cabaret where it started but Cabaret, which is spelled with a with a K and a double T at the end, that was kind of a, a more political and satirical form of cabaret, which is again very distinctively Berlin. And it wasn't frivolous kind of light entertainment as such. It was quite, it could be quite political and with satire. And that's kind of where you probably would encounter this Berliner schnauzer, this wit, biting, you know, commentary. When I started in London, Cabaret was part of burlesque. So they kind of put everything together in a, in a vaudeville. So you would have a burlesque show, but they would take on a vaudeville uh, format, which means it's one act after the other and it could be anything. Um, so it, it became an umbrella term. And now, obviously, I think personally, I think we're going again through a, some sort of rebirth but I think cabaret is quite a tenacious genre and it will always come back mm. and reinvent it. I never wanted to be a cabaret performer. I just fell into it. If I took a different route, wouldn't have become the performer or maybe I wouldn't have ended up being in Berlin and exploring the, the German cabaret of that period. You have explored it from the inside as it were not just as a sort of subject for academic historic research you've actually got inside it so you're seeing it from the point of view of the performer i used to do a lot of 1920s themed shows and i remember doing them and they were always so watered down i had to you couldn't do this on stage you couldn't do that so i think when i moved here i said right i i would like to explore a show that could be as authentic to the time, to the spirit of the time, with absolute freedom, no restrictions. And I wanted to do it as as real as I possibly could because there's no footage that remained from inside a cabaret. I mean, there's a few photos here and there, but there isn't any recordings. Unfortunately, maybe they were destroyed or maybe they just didn't film inside. You have to use your imagination. And when I moved here, I was I wanted to really bring something back as much authentic material in it that I could find and really move past the kind of Marlena Dietrich and Liza Minnelli references because that's kind of where it stops for most people and they they seem to kind of base their whole concept or, or idea of what it is on this film or a bit of Marlena Dietrich but there, there's obviously much more. For a lot of people if they've seen the film Cabaret the Bob Foss film you know which I love by the way I mean I love that film but, uh, but it's a terrific film but, uh, but that is for most of us, the extent of what we know and what we imagine about it. And some of the characters that you talked about, um, which I was certainly completely unaware of, um, are fascinating because they were doing things which were particularly, at the time, seemed very adventurous and avant-garde, like Anita Berber. This is a sidebar. Anita Berber was a German dancer, actress and writer and, very famously, the subject of an Otto Dix painting. Born in Leipzig to divorced bohemian parents, a cabaret artist and a violinist, by the time she was 16 she had moved to Berlin and made her debut as a cabaret dancer. By 1918 she was working in film and began dancing nude in 1919. She was scandalous, androgynous and infamous, quickly making a name for herself on the Berlin scene. She wore heavy makeup, which on the black and white photos and films of the time came across as jet black lipstick painted across the heart-shaped part of her skinny lips and charcoal eyes. Her hair was cut fashionably in a short bob, 
frequently bright red. Berber's cocaine addiction and bisexuality were matters of public debate. She was allegedly the sexual slave of a woman and the woman's 15-year-old daughter. She could often be seen in Berlin's hotel lobbies, nightclubs and casinos, naked, apart from an elegant sable wrap, with a pet monkey and a silver brooch packed with cocaine. Besides being a cocaine addict, she was an alcoholic, but at the age of 29, gave up both suddenly and completely. She was diagnosed with galloping tuberculosis while performing abroad and died November 10th, 1928. I mean, she's a really fascinating character. She was a dancer and she was really one of the first uh, new dancers in Berlin. There was a few people before her that did new dancing, but she was the first one that really became famous and notorious at the same time. There's a bar in Berlin called Anita Berbenau. There is a park that was the cemetery that she was buried in, and now it's been um, rebranded as a park and it's called Anita Berber. So they, they, there's a lot of interest in her now. She's, a, she's kind of a, a heroine for a lot of people. I mean, she was very rock and roll and, and um, the scandals and her drug use and sex affairs and just uh, people kind of love all that, all kind of the salacious, you know, smarty bits of her. But I, I think she was much more than that. She was an absolute exhibitionist. There's a there's a word in German called Hampensau. It's it's someone who can't get enough attention on stage, and it's just she really lived on the stage, and she really fed off this energy, whether it was shock or um, it was disgust. She was very provocative in what she did. She really lived her life. Um, uh, on her own terms, she was very open sexually. She, she would have affairs. Apparently, she slept with a sexologist, uh, Magnus Hirschfeld. He was uh, he was a gay man, and he said that was the only woman he slept with. She she seemed to have had this this magnetic personality, and, and but also she she sounds like she was very complicated and uh, obviously entitled. I don't think she was a particularly nice person, from what I can read, the impression I get. But she lived her life una uh, unapologetically. She lived it without any consequences and any care or what, what people thought. And I mean, we're, we're talking now about the beginning of the 20s, where she was actually really already started to be known for her new dancing. She was in several silent films and she was just uh, involved in scandal after scandal. Apparently she insulted the king of Yugoslavia and she was she was in prison for six weeks for that. So I think people just like this idea of this woman just just taking control of her life right. and just not caring. And I I think that's and 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 on the other hand, she was a very serious dancer. I think that's the thing that people kind of forget about. We don't talk about a lot. Is she was very serious about her dancing. She she really blossomed and she she was she came alive when she was on stage and and. This was also the time of uh, expressionism and Ausdruck-Tanz, which is a kind of expressionistic dance that she was involved in. And um, so she also set a lot of trends. Apparently the prostitutes copied her look. She was that kind of uh, famous and feared and um, desired all at once. And I mean, she was a big celebrity and uh, became darling of the tabloids. So she made news wherever she went. Right, and you've got a song or a piece connected with her, right? This track is called Morphium. It is by Misha Skolienski. And this song was actually composed for the dancer Anita Berber for one of her performances, also entitled, entitled Morphium.
think she just really lived her life as much as she could. And it would have been interesting if she survived. I mean, I'm sure she would have been banned from stages when the Nazis came into power as they obviously banned a lot of performers. It's also immortalized in the that wonderful portrait by Otto Dix, right? I actually saw this painting for the very first time during a trip uh, in July to Paris. It's at the Pompidou Centre at the moment about uh, new ob objectivity and this painting is there. So I did, I did squeal a little when I saw it. <laughs> but if you look at the painting, and I think this was painted in 1925, 1926, around that time. And she was still in her mid-20s, but she mm. looks like a 50-year-old woman. She looks worn out, actually, doesn't she? She looks yeah. worn out. And if I really went in, like, really close up to the painting and Otto Dix painted her, her eyes are all green. I don't know if that's supposed to be a reference to the morphine and, and, and opium that she allegedly took um, copious amounts of. And I mean, this, the thing is with Anita, there's so many different stories and a lot of things are exaggerated. So I think, you know, who knows what is true, what isn't, but this painting is obviously very famous, very beautiful. And also it's interesting to know that the dress that she wore when she posed for to Dix, that dress was actually black, but he decided to paint it red. Um, she was also very known for her makeup, this white face and the red lips and, and the kind of smudgy eyes. Um, so yeah, it's just mesmerizing looking at this very striking painting. It's really gorgeous. Yeah. Well, let's hear about another person that you introduced me to. Here is a sidebar about Valeska Gert. Valeska Gert was born in 1892 to a Jewish family in Berlin. Exhibiting no interest in academics, she began taking dance lessons at the age of nine. This, combined with a love of ornate fashion, led to a career in dance and performance art. World War I had a negative effect on her father's finances, forcing her to rely on herself far more than other bourgeois daughters typically might. As World War I raged, she joined a Berliner dance group and created a revolutionary satirical dance. In the 1920s, she premiered one of her more provocative works titled Pause, performed in between reels at Berlin cinemas. It was intended to draw attention to inactivity, silence, serenity and stillness amid all the movement and chaos of modern life. She just came on stage and stood there. Her other progressive performances included dancing a traffic accident, boxing or dying. She was revolutionary and radical and never ceased to simultaneously shock and fascinate her audiences. When she danced an orgasm in Berlin in 1922, the audience called the police. She also launched a tour of her own dances with titles like Dance in Orange, Boxing, Circus, Japanese Grotesque, Death and Whore. Her arms flailed, her eyes rolled, she thrust her hips, she bent and twisted and exaggerated her body shapes into grotesque forms. She said, I danced all of the people the upright citizen despised, whores, pimps, depraved souls, the ones who slipped through the cracks. She's actually kind of the opposite of Benita. And she was very short. She wasn't particularly attractive, I think you would say. And she kind of really used that in her dance. And she became known as a uh, grotesque dancer. So she would just be pulling faces and contort her body and do all sorts of strange things with her, with her, with her body and face. And um, she, uh, she was also banned from the stage when the Nazis came in and, and, um, and she managed to carve out a career afterwards. I think she, she had a bar in New York, I don't know if it was in the 40s or 50s around that time, and that apparently a young uh, Tennessee Williams, he was a waiter at her bar, which I think is really interesting. And Tennessee Williams is another one of my favorite mm -hmm. playwrights. So she, and she was famous for this, having an orgasm on stage, which was pushing it at that, that time. Was Great it? controversy. Yeah. Again, she was someone that a lot of, what I read about Valeska now is people now say, well, she was the first performance artist or whatever. And so these people all get different labels. So you've got to kind of, I think, uh, again, decide for yourself. But she definitely was very, in terms of movement, and she was very successful and very um, out there. And she's a fascinating person. Um, there's actually a performer here in Berlin called Bridge Martin. She actually performs as Anita and as Valeska. So she creates her own kind of interpretation. It's very interesting. And she actually does the orgasm on stage part in my cabaret. Um, 
But I think Valeska, a, a lot of these performers after the war, they couldn't really recapture their success mm. that they had, unfortunately. So it's very sad. You've got these women who are breaking the mold. You know, they're out there um, in a way that seems unlikely that they could be in this country or even in America. But also, what about the queer clubs and the fact that uh, homosexuality might have stayed illegal technically until the 70s? But I mean, at this time, it was much more tolerated, right? That aspect of of the Berlin Cabaret is a sort of fascinating thing too, right? I mean, it's quite strange that this was even possible. For some reason, this just became almost one of the main draws, I guess, during that time. Uh, in terms of all these uh, queer nightclubs. I mean, they were not called queer back then, but they were for gays, gay men and lesbian uh, women and people that uh, identified as transgender. So there was these clubs and dance halls that were just open for anyone. So um, they had their own newspapers. They had their own political parties. I mean, it was very progressive. It was really, really out there if you think about it and as i mentioned before the, the the gay rights movement started in the late 1800s led by Magnus Hirschfeld his um um his uh, venue were one of the first that were closed down by the nazis and ransacked and they burned all the papers and he uh, he had he left germany of course i think he passed away in, in france I think for whatever fetish or fantasy you had or whatever you identified as or there was a place for you there was even a guide that you could that listed all the the naughty venues and mm. anything you wanted so I, I haven't yet got my hands on a, an original copy yet I would love to really just go through it and see what they what was available and also I think the word homosexual is a German invention by a German who coined this term the history goes far back, actually, much further than you would think. But a very short window of, you can call it decadence or you could call it being progressive. Extraordinary. Um, there's another thing which you've done which fascinated me because you reinterpreted the Cabaret de Namenlosen, which was deeply strange. <laughs> Tell us about that. In English, it's Cabaret of the Nameless. So this is a cabaret that actually really existed. It was... It existed from 1926 till about 1932, I believe. It was um, a club where amateurs or anyone with no talent were put on stage and they were basically encouraged to perform. Um, and the audience would come in especially to mock them and laugh at them and throw sugar cubes. And it's just awful. It's almost like a... Mm, yeah, like a sort of theatre of the cruel sort of thing. The chap that started the show was called Eric Lewinsky. He was um, an actor. He wasn't very, he's not, he's not, he doesn't really pop up before from what I can find. He wasn't really anyone special. So he came up with this novel idea to put on a, a cabaret where people would be mocked and it was quite cruel, but very successful. This ran for many, many years. And, uh, people would volunteer to perform even if they knew they were going to be mocked. That's quite strange. So what he did was he put an advertisement in the newspaper asking advertising for actors. He was looking for people. So apparently on the first advertisement, over 180 people replied to it. So there were more than enough people willing to put themselves on stage. And I mean, everyone wants to be famous. I mean, nothing has changed now, you know. So people would would be willing to do anything to be on stage, even if it's for a few minutes. So this is what he did. Uh, I heard this, the, the cabaret, the name is being mentioned. I was immediately very intrigued by it, looked it up, and there, there isn't much information. And so I was quite horrified at what it was, but I was interested with the title. So I, I kind of kept the title, but I wanted to do something different. And I wanted to create a fantasy, a kind of the ultimate 1920s fantasy bring back to life and the, again the spirit of the time the that ultimate freedom the experimentation that happened i basically just put in everything that inspired me so we're talking about david lynch films to modern music to modern uh, styling so all the songs that are sung live are original from the 20s or 30s so they're mostly there are german songs there's a few english songs thrown in and then some of the performances would be set to electronic music because it just brings that kind of exuberance and energy out and uh we had a cast of 12 people and they were all cabaret artists because they really bring themselves so there is that kind of 
it's rough and ready almost, which a lot of cabarets were, you know, it's that edge to it. It doesn't mean it's accurate, but it's my, and what I see in my head when I close my eyes is to create this kind of, as soon as you walk in, you're in another world. It's smoky, it's weird. There's just people walking around, all these kind of ghosts from the past. You hear some music in the distance. Um, there was a scene in The Shining where Jack Nicholson goes into a bar and you could hear um, some elbowly music playing in the background, but it sounds very distant. So I really like that. It's, it's kind of haunting. And we had a beautiful venue from 1905. It had telephones on the tables from 1930. So you could call other tables and you just have to kind of play through it and everyone's giggling. At least it's an old fashioned phone rather than a mobile phone. Exactly. And there's no, there's not hardly any venues that survive. What were the sort of venues that the Berlin Cabaret was in? I mean, were they those beautiful theatres or were they underground dive bars? Or When you think of them, you imagine something like the Kit Kat Club in Berlin or you imagine beautiful opulence. But I think majority of them were in real dives. It was just a pub with a few chairs or a very uh, plain stage. I, I think most of them were not that nice. I mean, if you if you talk about the beautiful theatres, that that's what housed the big reviews. Mm -hmm. Obviously, in the in the in the mid twenties, the review was the most popular uh, entertainment environment in Berlin. The kind of the nude reviews. So they will you had the Tiller girls that came out during that time. So you just have chorus lines of girls, either nude or not. Big, very big productions. They were obviously inspired by uh, Zigfield and his kind of shows. So you would have. You would, you would have your operas, your ballets, your theatres, your series plays, and then you, then you would have the reviews, and then they would kind of trickle down. So you would have your political cabarets, your lit, uh, literary uh, cabarets, and you'd have the nude ones, and they would just get sleazier, I guess. So then you would have the kind of real dives that was in, a, in the back of a restaurant or a back in a... I think you had from from the top end to, to the low end, and, and but I think most of the gay cabras or whatever. I think, again, there isn't much left. Uh, there's a few photos here and there, and some of them are really beautifully furnished, very lush. Um, they had different themes. Some of them are pretty and some were not. We're, we're running sort of short of time here, and I wanted to run to the end of this period, really, because it's in the film Cabaret, isn't it? We talked about it, you know, a little bit before. Um, the Nazis National Socialist Party starts to come to power this brings the end of the Weimar Republic, but also a rather brutal end to this wonderful, strange, progressive period. The Nazis themselves um, didn't approve, did they? So what happened? 1932 already, they, they targeted gay clubs first, and there was a list that had to be closed immediately. So during the period from 1933 up until the outbreak of the Second World War, shows closed down one or to the other. A lot of cabaret um, MCs or performers uh, left the country. They were run mostly by Jewish performers and um, directors as such. So there was a few cabarets that survived up until the, the outbreak of the Second World War. Um, but I think in 1941, if I'm correct, Goebbels even um, banned MCs. They were not allowed to be on stage anymore because the cabarets became obviously very nationalistic and the Nazis wanted to really control what was said on stage. But at the same time, is they, they did keep a lot of nude reviews. So there's this kind of... That was probably quite a straight heterosexual men looking at nude women sort of thing. Yeah, they, a... they kept some of them, but I think the kind of really progressive cabarets, the, the stuff, um, Holland, Friedrich Hollander and, and, and uh, Kurt Weill, all these people, what they did was immediately illegal. So I think the gay clubs, most of them got closed first. They targeted certain performers or certain MCs were very outspoken or Jewish or both. So it slowly over those years trickled out until we were left with nothing. And then the Berlin Cabaret actually died in um, the concentration camps. Someone really important, Billy Rosen, he's, he's basically forgotten. He was, again, very famous composer and he put on cabarets in concentration camps right until he was um, murdered. So I think that's kind of where it ends then. It was truly extinguished, Berlin a cabaret as it was known then. When I think about it, I, I just can't wrap my mind around what 
these people went through and what the reality and the fear they must have experienced. Um, Absolutely. Well, we're going to hear another tune. What's this? This song is called Das ist Berlin and it was written by Willy Rosen. Warum besingt man die Pariser Straßen? Warum besingt man ihn und seinen Wein? Warum besingt man London Zäubermatten? Warum besingt man Tag und Nacht den Rhein? Von Rom singt freudig der Berichterstatter. Man singt sein Lied auf ferne Tokio. Man singt sogar von Kiritz an der Knatter. Vom fernen Nordpol singt der Eskimo. Nicht einfach auf den Dom der Invaliden, auf Grinzing, Prater und die Lorelei. Ich bin mit einem Erdenfleck zufrieden, dem dieses Liedchen heute widmet sei. Ja, das ist Berlin, auf der Tauenzinn, wo nachts die Lichter der Straße ergönnen. Dort auf dem Pflaster, da zieht das Laster, die blonden Mädels von Berlin. Ja, das ist Berlin, auf der Tauenzin, wo nachts die Lichter der Straße erglühen, wo süß die Liebchen und tief die Grüßchen. What's extraordinary for me, because I've done a lot of research into, uh, you know, Soviet Union. We know the Soviet Union and the Nazis were absolute bitter enemies. There's so many parallels between the two things. I mean, the same things happened, basically. There was a period of liberalization in the 20s, and it was shut down and stamped on, you know, by jack jackboot. You know, the doors of the salons and the theatres kicked open, performers dragged from stages, performers sent to gulags, where some of them carried on, where they the gulag bosses would actually bring together performers and singers and bands and put on reviews partly as a way to kind of keep the prisoners from revolt it was part of a kind of process and even compete with different gulags you know where some of the singers managed to survive and even came out the other end and of course many of the most famous say russian tango singers had to leave the country you know and people like Piotr Lyshenko with the Cabaret Russe in Bucharest, you know, the only way he could survive, you know, was to actually be in exile. And even then he ended up himself dying in a Romanian prison camp. And there is something sort of terrible, isn't there, about that people who are just performers, people who are artists, people who are musicians and singers and dancers becoming the enemies of the state in that way. Talk about the yeah, Willie Rosen, where he even keeps going when he's in the transit camp, right? Till the end, almost. First holding camp, it was in, I think it's called Westerball, where he put on reviews and it helped obviously for morale to keep people kind of, um, maybe give them hope or just give them something to hold on to. But I, I think he, he probably thought it would save him somehow, but in the end it didn't, so. Um, it's very tragic. Again, he was very, very um, prolific and created so many works. Most of them are forgotten. So he's just one of these forgotten performers and artists. I mean, I'm sure there's so many that we just don't know about. So I, I and the more I spend time, you know, looking at this period or reading, the more you discover. So there's just, this really is a lot. If I at least can help preserve this, this period or keep it alive in a way, in any way I can. I think that's really important. Absolutely. Keep on keeping it alive. Well, Madame Lapoustra, thank you so much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture to talk about Lost Cabaret. Sure, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks very much to Madame Lapoustra. I will put links in the show notes to their amazing work. Check it out. Beautiful, beautiful work. Strange and wonderful, an evocation of a strange and wonderful lost culture from between the wars. We will be back next time with more tales of lost culture. In the meantime, do come and join us, sign up for our newsletter, bureauoflostculture.com. You can hear about all the stuff that's going to be going on. You can write us a letter, tell us what you would like to hear about. I thought we would end with a song from Madame Lepoustre, from the Cabaret of the Nameless. 
It's originally from a film called Salon Kitty, made in the 70s about Salon Kitty, which was a cabaret in the Second World War, where the Nazis replaced the prostitutes with spies. It's called The Morning After. They say that all things must have an end That broken bones and broken hearts take oh so long to mend You heard it so often, it must be true Will you believe it when it happens to you? Your morning coffee won't taste the same A fix won't help a lot You've only got yourself to blame Your bed so empty Your world so black Is there no joy? Is there no love? Is there no turning back? Your life's in pieces What can you say? As you light yet another cigarette Dance far away With sleepless eyes you realize It's not the same world anymore On the morning after the night 